Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're remembering Loretta Lynn and drummer Anton Fear. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, we're revisiting Lowe's interview and performance from 2011 in tribute to Mimi Parker. Greg, listeners will no doubt remember that just a few weeks ago we paid tribute to Mimi Parker of Lowe, who died on November 5th of ovarian cancer at age 55. As the drummer and sometimes vocalist in Low, she had a huge influence over the band's 13 studio albums and many EPs and singles. Simply put, Low was Alan and Mimi. Without her, I don't know if Alan Sparhawk, her husband, is going to continue with Low in any form. He'll probably continue making music. Uh, but it remains to be seen what the future is uh, for Low's music. What we do know is that they left behind an incredible discography dating back uh, to the 90s. I mean, in, to my mind, there, was ne- there was, wasn't a bad album in the bunch. Um, it was after the ninth album uh, that we had them on Sound Opinions for an interview and performance. And that day, the band was rounded up by Steve Garrington and Eric Pollard. Let's go back to that 2011 interview and hang out with Mimi for a bit. Welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. Yes, yeah, long time coming, I guess. Alan, Mimi... This band had a unique sound almost from day one. Came up in the middle of the alternative rock era. Remember that back in the early '90s, and yes. Uh, yes. you guys sounded like no one else. Mm-hmm. Was it s- strictly a case of you know if we're going to be a band, we might as well do a, something completely different? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I had played in more rock bands, but felt felt my interests and sort of my curiosity was more with minimalism and very simple stuff. Some of the more simple things from say uh, Velvet Underground or Joy Division and uh, yeah it was more or less very against the grain of what was going on at the time but that was sort of part of the challenge and the fun I think kind of being true to that time to me meant more about doing something new and the freedom and the sort of the public that was suddenly aware of what could be done at the time early 90s how did it go over (laughs) up in beautiful northern Minnesota well it's you know our first show we played in Duluth for about, what, 10, 15 people? And some of them stayed. Some, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now by the time we'd written a couple songs and then played our first show and had a few people really react to it, we knew we were on to something. Yeah, the atmosphere was uh, at the time, you know, grunge, Nirvana, Soundgarden, mm-hmm. really yeah. loud, aggressive. Yeah. You guys come in really quiet and slow and moody and atmospheric and melodic. Playing a lot of the same clubs that all those bands were playing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the noisier bands. And later on in your career, you obviously proved that you could play loud and aggressive music. But Mimi, at the time, was it more a case of we're just happier doing this? My history, you know, my parents listened to country music and... This is kind of the music that I think comes pretty natural to me. Not that I don't like to rock out, but that is more of a more stretch yeah, for my personality. Has it ever been an albatross around your necks? Because as Greg said, when we look back now on this, what, nine-album career, there are, are explosive moments, and there are very experimental sure. moments, and there are very mm-hmm. quiet moments, but 
the phrase slow core is sure. hung on you guys. Mm. You know, you're the inheritors of what Galaxy 500 had done sure. uh, at the end of the indie era. Sure, sure. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, people are always going to need sort of simple definitions of what's going on and subdivisions, you know, black metal, slow core. <laughs> you know, you know what you're getting into. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I don't know. We don't loathe it as much as maybe people think we do. We don't refer to ourselves in that way. No, though, we don't refer to ourselves necessarily. But, why? but as long as they're talking about you, right? Yeah, as long that, as that's all. Something. Yeah, that's all you need. Well, if there was a premium put on certain things, what were they? Well, um, minimalism for sure. Mm-hmm. And from that, sort of the drive to try to get as much of the essence of a song or sort of the spirit of a song in there with as little... Going with, on with, as, with as little yeah. going on as possible. Simple melodies, very simple lyrics. Early on, it just really struck us as a, as a very good vehicle for the spirit or the vibe of mm-hmm. certain a certain vibe that that would just sort of happen when we stepped into that realm. And and you know, after a while, it became very natural to us. We toured a lot over the years, and, and that ethic sort of just becomes more ingrained and. You know, different times in our career, we would be even further down that road. I mean, there were times early on where we were playing songs that were five minutes on the record for eight and ten minutes long without adding anything because mm-hmm. we, were, we were actually playing that much slower. <laughs> and it's it was just, Ooh, it was a certain was envelope. Tough. Yeah, it was weird. But <laughs> I think you were the first band that I encountered that probably had to have a rider to allow people to bring pillows, pillows. into shows. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, sir, you can't bring that pillow in here, but it's low. But it's low. Part I mean, of their deal, part of their contract, right? I'm going to yeah. need to sleep at some point during the show. It's nice playing places that people can sit down, and there were years where we would play really, even the dingiest clubs, people would decide to just sit down on the floor. But I don't know, you can't get too precious about the way people react to you. And if you, know, if you try to say shut up or... or Come yeah, on, let's get rowdy. I don't it think never we've works. Ever, we've never told anybody to shut up. <laughs> and you have worked with an amazing string of collaborators, producers, Steve Albini, yep. Dave Fridman, lately mm-hmm. Matt Beckley, who people may not know. What's what's the lineage there, Alan? <laughs> um, Matt is actually the son of Jerry Beckley, who's in a band called America. Yeah. Wow. And uh, as you'd expect, growing up in L.A., he he's a musician, come producer, mixer. He's worked with everything from us to Britney Spears to uh, Avril Lavigne, uh, Switchfoot. Is that mm-hmm. the one? Yeah, Switchfoot. Yeah, I think he's got. He's actually got a gold record on his wall from that one. So you got this this highfalutin pop producer working <laughs> with you guys. What what were you looking for? Well, the we perversity were... I think was probably what initially was. Yeah, a happy Hollywood ending. Yeah. <laughs> It's perverse. I just thought, you know, we've worked with a lot of a, a real variety of people, and we've always we always enjoy. I mean, the more the more intense they are, and the more of a signature they put on it, the more interesting it is to us. So, why not go with someone that extreme? You know, we didn't go in there saying, okay, let's we want these to sound like Kesha, <laughs> though he could have, he could have for sure. Probably would have taken a little less time, but uh, but. Uh, it's a pleasure to work with people who have spent that much time and understand and know more than you mm-hmm. and, and watch, watch them make things, make things jump out. Well, what do you say we give people a sense of what we're talking about? Are you going to play something from the new album or what are you going to give us? Yeah, let's do, let's do a new song. It's the first song from the record called Try to Sleep.
Try to Sleep, performed live by Lowe in 2011 on Sound Opinions. Coming up, we've got more songs and conversation from that session and tributes to Loretta Lynn and Anton Fear. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My co-host is Greg Cott. That is a little bit of Robert Plant's cover of Lowe's song, Monkey. 
when Alan Sparhawk and Mimi Parker were on Sound Opinions in 2011, we were still pretty surprised to hear that Led Zeppelin's frontman uh, was covering a Lowe song. So I had to ask him about it. I've heard via few people that have worked with Robert that he's fairly into new music and really goes out of his way to find new stuff. Uh, I was just talking to John Langford, and he said that when he met him, Robert had mentioned some really obscure record that John had done that he had at home that he liked. liked Don't you love the idea of of the golden god of Led Zeppelin sitting around playing Mekon's records, Langford, Mm -hmm. and playing low music? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, if I could tell you how much he scared me the first time I heard Black Dog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I seriously thought that Beelzebub himself was was about to take me over. <laughs> but uh, it turns out he's a real, real nice guy. An okay guy. <laughs> hey, hey, mama said the way you move gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove. Let's talk about the goal of this record. You know, Drums and Guns, 2007 is a very political album. Greg and I were big fans of it. It was the record that was needed at that time, it seemed like, in the, in the midst of these wars. We were trying. Yeah. <laughs> we were trying. I think a lot of a lot of artists were trying. And I've read quotes where you guys have said, Come On is an album of love songs. Yeah, a lot more intimate, a lot more kind of talking to one person instead of struggling with trying to talk to everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mim and I are married, and we sing together a lot. I think there's there's sort of maybe a certain perception around us that because we're married and stuff, but I don't know, we're not real big, obvious love song writers until maybe more recently. And it's not so much love as much as, I don't know, intimacy. The songs feel like stuff you would say to someone you've been through a lot with. Mimi, how many kids do you guys have now? We have two kids. How does that impact? Because you still go out on the road for long stretches and you play hard, you play live. Mm -hmm. Is that tough? Well, you know, I'll tell you. Right when we're leading up to leaving, there's a lot of anxiety in the house. You know, the kids are starting to get kind of emotional because we don't take them as much mm-hmm. on the road. You know, they're both in school, 11 and 6. So so everybody starts to get a little emotional and a little separation anxiety starts to... But, you know, we get through that and, yeah. you know, <laughs> kind of as soon as everybody's out the door on their way, everybody's they're happy. They're a good time already. Yeah, back They've to forgotten about us. <laughs> Are there like grandparents or who? who uh, well, the... you know, I have a good friend who mm-hmm. moves into the house and mm-hmm. takes over, so they don't miss a beat. They treat her like they treat me, so yeah. I know they're happy. Well, we won't tell anybody, but it's kind of a vacation for you guys, isn't it? Uh... You know, I didn't want to say anything, but woohoo. No. <laughs> mm-hmm. In terms of recording this new record, maybe back to a little bit more of that quieter sound. Mimi, did you guys get feel any pushback because you did take some chances in terms of what people perceive low to be with The Great Destroyer, a, a much more aggressive record, and Drums and Guns, a more experimental record? You know, we've found that our fans have been pretty accepting of what we've done. But, you know, we were told years ago by Wayne Coyne that you get a new fan base every seven years. So I'm not sure if that's true or not. But and Wayne knows all. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was right before they put out the soft bulletin. That's, <laughs> Wayne, that, that's Wayne's excuse not to play any of the Flaming Lips good albums oh. anymore. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Ouch. So it, it was more a thing internally that the band felt like it needed to do this as opposed to, like, what are the fans going to think? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's always that, that's been the case with all the, the records we've done. You know, you really get, can get yourself into a hole if you start trying to second guess what the people are going to want to hear. Mm-hmm. 
I felt after doing Great Destroyer and then especially Drums and Guns, we were sort of reaching at a certain extreme. Drums and Guns especially was very uh, intentionally messed up. I mean, mm -hmm. we took these songs and intentionally took away the instruments that we would normally use and intentionally made the arrangements cold and a little bit more hard. And it, it, I think after doing that very intentional messing with the songs, we, this time we went in the opposite direction and just let the songs go. After doing the record, listening to it, I realized one time, I, I realized that there's no dissonance on it. <laughs> there's mm -hmm. no noise. It's a very easy record to swallow, if, as horrible as that sounds. But, but, uh, it's very easy yeah. listening. <laughs> I, I guess maybe just an attitude. I, I, yeah. I felt like but, you know, we were but very before, egotistical on before drums. Before every but. record that we record, Alan always will say, you know, we need to do, we need to make this really difficult and make this really, so, you know. But it doesn't always. It never works. Yeah, it never works. He's always got this idea, but I guess I kind of say, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with putting out a pretty record. Mim won this time. Yeah, I won. Well, how about another song? Yeah, let's try All this right. one. Let's do, let's do it. You see everything? You see everything.
See Everything by Low on Sound Opinions, Alan Sparhawk, Mimi Parker, Steve Garrington on bass, and Eric Pollard sitting in over there on keyboard, usually the drummer in Retribution Gospel Choir, a band yes. that you guys have toured with. Yeah, yeah. Eric's the drummer in that band. So we mentioned before, you guys don't talk much about it in interviews, but, but you're both spiritual people. How does that play into your music? Well, I mean, it, the boring answer is, is that the same as anyone else. I mean, I think spirituality or religion sort of defines for each individual like who they think they are and who everyone else is and why am I here why do I get up in the morning to me those are those are the core of why you make music as well and and so again the boring answer is it just sort of is a natural thing and I think everybody when they create draw draw upon their perception of who they are and what the world is and what another person is and but it always uh, strikes me as kind of weird you know indie underground rock which is supposed to be about no rules no restrictions no rules. open oh, everything man. but you know Wild. if you dare to talk about christianity or your beliefs at all oh no now you're branded i mean but seriously some you know pedro <laughs> the lion yeah. great indie band totally yeah. he's pretty religious yeah. man even, even michael Girard from the swans i've had mm. really great Intense spiritual, intense spiritual relations. Yeah. Relations, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that too. But, spiritual but, relations. But, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, there's, most musicians are I mean, not spiritual. everybody agrees on I don't want to call it that, maybe, maybe the basics, but. but I think everybody has a sense of something more than themselves, hmm. you know, and I think that's kind of yeah, what it you is. Yeah, can't, you can't really play music without having a little bit of a humility for something, something that's a little bigger than, more beautiful than you think. One of the reasons I think that it doesn't come up a lot because I don't think you're really super overt about it. But there was the beautiful Christmas EP in '99, which I think it's fairly religious. Everyone I've ever given that record to is like, that's my favorite Christmas record of all time. Here for us, a humble birth, the Son of God. Descends to earth, take the long way around the sea. Was a little bit of a stretch in terms of okay, we're sort of putting this out there. Not really. We had, well, we had done a single. Someone asked us to do a a Christmas song for a single and mm-hmm. a year later someone asked us to do something for a radio thing in Holland and so we had, we had sort of gathered up a few and had 
dipped our toes in it, so to speak. And you know, this, this Christmas song thing goes pretty well. Maybe we should do a an EP. So we finished huh, it up. Everybody does a Christmas record. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty safe, isn't it? <laughs> right. You're not well, stepping we, on any yeah. toes or freaking anybody out with that. Yeah, and you don't, you know, it's a nice opportunity to take your ego out. It's a great CD <laughs> to give place. to families I, I, and I think friends. the difference, though, Mimi, is that I think in, in the indie world at the time, if there was Christmas records coming out, they were sort of tongue-in-cheek or right, a little right. bit. Yeah, that, I guess that is the, maybe the... Ours is, I would say, pretty sincere. People are afraid to be sincere about that I don't know as much as it's it's in everybody we, we just don't like talking about it I want to go back to the <laughs> devil side though I want to talk about the song Witches what an extraordinary tune both lyrically and musically that wonderful eruptive uh, Neil Young guitar solo and then you know what are you talking about the witches in the bedroom and beating them off with a baseball bat and then you're going to start talking about Al Green which yep. if I'm not mistaken is a line stolen from Cool Keith right yeah that's a Cool Keith line I just couldn't get out of my head I just love that tune but uh, yeah, I don't know. The song is sort of just little true little true stories about witches and dogs and true <laughs> stories and witches are words that usually don't go together, though. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Second verse is a true story. I, as a kid, I uh, as kids do sometimes, you get up and you don't, you know, yeah, I don't, I can't sleep. So you go and tell your mom and dad that you can't sleep. So and my dad obviously was a little annoyed, wanted to get rid of me, and he said, "What's going on? Why are you Why are you up?" Well, um, uh, there's, uh, there's, a, there's witches flying around my room. <laughs> kind of reaching for a quick answer. And my dad, without a, skipping a beat, took, took this plastic bat and said, well, here, hit him with this. <laughs> Go to sleep. So I went back, dragging, this, dragging the plastic wiffle ball back what to my dad, room, feeling stupid. What are dads for? I think we have to hear that song, right? Yeah, let's do we it. We got to hear that. That yeah. was my ulterior motive there. <laughs>
gave me a baseball bat and said, here's what you do. When you have finally submitted to embarrassing capture Take out that baseball bat and show those witches some pasture Witches from Low here in the Sound Opinion Studio. Alan Sparhawk, Mimi Parker, Steve Garrington, Eric Pollard. Thanks so much for coming in, guys. Oh, this has been great. Thanks Thank you so us. much. Thanks, guys. That's it for our 2011 session with Low, and now we want to hear from you, our listeners. Do you have a favorite memory of seeing Low perform live? Did you listen to the Christmas EP this year? Leave a message on our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up, we pay tribute to Loretta Lynn and drummer Anton Fear. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions. We're back. Over the past year, we've paid tribute to a few musicians we've lost in our episodes that air on the radio. Artists like Christine McVie and Jerry Lee Lewis and Mimi Parker. But if you listen to our podcast, you've heard many more tributes to artists who died in 2022. We want to bring a couple of those to our radio listeners now. I'll start with Loretta Lynn. It, it's sad to have to do this. At the same time, what, a, what an incredible life Loretta Lynn had, 90 years of greatness. What an incredible story. You know, uh, the song Coal Miner's Daughter, it's really her life story in a lot of ways, uh, and also the title of the movie that was made about mm-hmm. her starring Sissy Spacek. An incredible piece of writing. Well, I was born a coal miner's daughter 
in a cabin on a hill in Butcher Holler. That's exactly where Butcher she started. Butcher Holler. Butcher Holler in Kentucky, a coal mining community, born there in 1932. She was 15 years old when she was married to Oliver Doolittle Lynn, who was 21 at the time. That was in 1948. And uh, basically, Loretta, Loretta's career was writing about their marriage, their relationship, their family. She was very relatable because she was telling the stories that just about every woman was going through. It was yeah. a universal, universal stories told about the specifics of her marriage and not literally not pulling any punches. No, I mean, well, there's know, a song called Fist City that, you know. <laughs> well, the fact that it was him who gave her a guitar and yeah. said, I think you've got to learn to play this, right? Uh -huh. You know, I think he may have occasionally regretted that later. <laughs> well, you know, he did give her, sad to say, but he did give her the license to do that, said, yeah. I, I want you to do this. And that was important then, because you're talking about a very traditional values kind of scenario there. And Loretta, in many ways, transcended that. And, and she declared her independence as a woman in song after song. I mean, consider that when she emerged in the early 60s, you know, there was hardly any women singing country music. Mm -hmm. uh, when she scored her first number one hit in 1967, Don't Come Home a Drinkin' with Lovin' on Your Mind, uh -huh. a song about her marriage. Yeah. That was a number one song. That was only the seventh number one hit by a, a, a female country artist oh my God. at the time. She had and what year was that? That was 1967. So Loretta at that point already had four children. Mm. Her career really didn't start until she was about 30. So you think about it, you know, a late bloomer in a lot of ways because of circumstance, you know. I'm a mom. I'm raising a family. And her husband is encouraging her to write music, and it turns out she's a great songwriter. Yeah. You know, I should note that here's the seventh uh, number one hit by a female country artist, but it was the first one that was written by a female country artist. Nashville's a factory town. Yeah. Songwriters write the songs, uh, singers sing them, uh, not for Loretta. Loretta was a great songwriter, in addition to being a great singer and a great performer. So she, she did it all. That can't be emphasized enough, how, you know, the path that she paved. Fist City in 1968, you know, you think about Dolly Parton's song, Jolene, she's begging the woman not to, not to, uh, mess around with her husband. Fifth City is like, you mess around with my husband, I'm gonna punch you out. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know? That's 1968. Rated X in 1972 about the stigma that uh, divorced women would face, you know? The Pill, 1975, about birth control. Yeah. A lot of these songs uh, became hits, even though not all radio stations would play them. Mm -hmm. The content was considered too controversial. But, you know, she didn't care. You know, I'm yeah. gonna write about my life, Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm doing. She was incredibly relatable because a lot of women were going through the same kind of issues with their husbands or their, their marriages. She basically gave voice to their lives. An incredible, incredible uh, pioneer in, in that regard. The other thing that I think, and, and perhaps got missed a little bit in some of the um, contextualizing of Loretta Lynn's incredible career, was that she essentially had a, a renaissance when she was 70, ended up forging another great era in her career at a time when most artists are retired or forgotten about. Loretta never really went away. Now, Jack White helped a little bit, you know, signed her up, got, made a record with her called Van Leer Rose in 2004. Mm. But White basically just said, here you go, Loretta. I'm just going to do whatever you do, want. Do your thing. I'm not going to. I'm not going to mess around with how great you already are. I just want you to be you. 
So she writes all 13 songs on this yeah. record, sings them, sings the hell out of them. Pretty sparse backing, you know, pretty much acoustic instrumentation on the record. The band is there to support her. She's the centerpiece. She makes this masterpiece at age 70, Van Leer Rose. And I want to go out on a track from that particular album, Story of My Life from Van Leer Rose. And, you know, what you can hear, because I've been talking a lot about how she was a, a voice of social consciousness, but there's also humor here, you know, mm-hmm. incredible amount of humor in her song. That sass, that attitude, and also poignance, but it's all here. My favorite verse in Story of My Life, which ends the Van Leer Rose record on mm-hmm. a terrific note. Well, some big shot from Hollywood thought a movie about my life would be good. It was a big hit, made a big splash. What I want to know is what happened to the cash? <laughs> <laughs> Loretta didn't get paid. Huh? Apparently not. But it was, it, and it's just a hilarious line, the way she just sends out that zinger at, at the end yeah. of that verse. Loretta Lynn with Story of My Life, an excerpt from that song uh, on Sound Opinions, in tribute to Loretta, dead at the age of 90 on October 4th. With some big shot from Hollywood Thought a movie about my life would be good It was a big hit, made a big but I wanna know what happened to the cash. Yeah, hey, yeah, hey, yeah, hey. Now me and Do married 48 years. Six kids later, a lot of laughter and tears. I have to say that I've been blessed. Not bad for this old Kentucky girl, I guess. Yeah, hey. That is fitting tribute to one of the best country artists of all time, Mr. Cott. Now, uh, if I may, I'd like to play a Loretta Lynn song as well. Uh, I'm going to go to 1975 with a song called The Pill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Loretta Lynn, uh, she, she avoided the label feminist that many uh, cultural critics, music critics wanted to put on her. Um, you know, uh, despite many, many songs about uh, husbands being stinking drunk and her not going to put up with it anymore, mm-hmm. uh, she didn't consider, her, consider herself a feminist. Um, she expressly rejected the label. However, Loretta was was married in her early teens, Greg, and she went through a difficult time with pregnancies. Uh, direct quote from Time Magazine uh, that in an interview, I had four kids before I was 18, she said. If I'd had the pill, I'd have been popping it like popcorn. <laughs> you know, this was a very controversial song banned in many places, but also making it uh, to number 70 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, right, as a pop crossover hit. It's Loretta saying, uh, you married me, wine me and dine me when I was your girl, promised uh, if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world, but all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. (laughs) (laughs) All that's changing, now I got the pill. Um, You know, again, mid-70s, a time when women taking control of their body uh, and and their uh, reproductive rights um, was still a controversial subject. Not that it isn't, again, today. Um, Loretta also told uh, Playgirl that she was, uh, you know, a Christian, uh, but she thought everybody, especially in rural areas, deserved the right to control their bodies. So you go, Loretta Lynn. You wind me and dine me when I was your girl Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill I'm tearing down your brooder house 
Cause now I've got the pill All these years I've stayed at home While you had all your fun All right, The Pill by Loretta Lynn. Inspiring then, inspiring still. You don't hear that as much as you hear Coal Miner's Daughter. But I'm going to pay tribute to a a slightly more obscure artist next, Greg. I'm going to play a song that Anton Fear played drums on. He died recently at the age of 66. Had not been playing drums for uh, several years. He'd been uh, struggling, I gather. Uh, But Anton Fear was ubiquitous Hmm. in the New York scene of the 80s, the Lower East Side noise rock jazz experimentation scene, originally born and raised in Cleveland, played with Pear Ubu in the late days of that band, moved to New York, right? If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And Anton wound up playing with Bill Laswell, Jack Bruce, John Zorn, Bob Mould, he, he's on that Black Sheets of Rain album. And right, man, right. Mould's first post-Husker Du trio was a supergroup with Per Ubu's Tony Maimoni, mm-hmm. Anton Fear, was way in demand. Played with Carla Blay, Jamaldine Takuma, did sessions with Mick Jagger, played with Herbie Hancock. Wow. That hip-hop yeah. groove merged with Herbie's uh, jazz fusion of Rocket. Hmm. Got to see him play live at the Grammys. That song was part of the Laurie Anderson crew. Uh, David Van Tegum started his career as a member of the Feelies in New York, right? And when I said life lessons from Anton, I was a super fan. Uh, watching him play drums with this mixture of unbelievable power, but also precision, right? You know, he was not a sloppy punk drummer. He was precise mm-hmm. in the way great jazz drummers were and just an absolute monster player. So I said, hey, Anton, I'd, I'd like to do an interview with you. Well, this was young. Jim Deere got his <laughs> 17, 18, 19, right? Modern drummer is interested in a feature. We spent several hours in the basement of Maxwell's by the boiler, and it's 100 degrees in the middle of February, you know, Q&A. I'm enough of a drummer that I could ask him the questions, right? So here's life lesson number one. Anton was nervous about did he deserve a feature in Modern Drummer? You know, his his discography is so long, I, I left out Golden Palominos, mm-hmm. right? A super group that's including Michael Stipe and Chris Stamey and uh, Sid Straw and, and, you know, that killer cover of Omaha by Moby Grape. We talk for hours. I transcribe it, which takes quintuple the time of our conversation. I made the mistake. He said he was nervous. I don't know if I belong in Modern Drummer. Yeah, Mm. of course. Look at your resume. Can I read the interview first? I said, yes. Journalists never do that, right? And then he decided he had nothing to say. And my first, you know, feature, possible cover story for Modern Drummer is down the tubes, Mm -hmm. right? Life lesson number two, Anton who lived in a fifth-floor walk-up on the Lower East Side and kept his drums there and, and would haul them to a rehearsal space. He was rehearsing seven days a week, five or six hours a day, right? I mean, he's a fantastic musician. And I remember him telling me that, and, and this was a point where I'm, I, I love playing the drums, right? And I'm wondering, what if, like, I had a chance to actually do this, right, full-time? 
I love playing drums, but not enough to do it six hours a day, (laughs) every day. I like this writing thing better, Mm -hmm. you know. So the two life lessons I learned from Anton, the number of times I saw him play with different bands. I got to go with the feelies, though, because that's where I heard him first. He's on the Crazy Rhythms album. And there's a song called Raised Eyebrows, Mm -hmm. which is an instrumental, aside from some mumbling from the band at the end. Glenn Mercer and Bill Million flip the script. The rhythm guitars are carrying the rhythm and the tom-toms, Anton's toms, are carrying the melody. It's like you can play melodically on the drums, which is common in jazz, Mm -hmm. but not so much in rock. So it's completely inside out and upside down. And the intensity with which he would perform live, and then the guitar solo comes in, and then the rhythm and melody merge. But it's it's as close as I think he ever got to a drum solo. And it's just, you know, one of my favorite tracks of all time. Raised Eyebrows from the Crazy Rhythms album by the Feelies, starring Anton Fear. Anton Fear, dead at the age of 66, a true tragedy. I've been playing my Golden Palominos, I've been Mm. playing the Feelies. And Greg, there's not even one website that has a dedicated drumography. You have to go back to your vinyl albums and CDs to find Anton's credits. Every, you know, third-tier character actor, you know, in Hollywood has an IMDB page, right? Yeah. But but you try to find a comprehensive list of everything Anton Fear played on. It's tragic that it's not out there. Yeah, it's that uh, phenomenal drummer. I got to see him play live a bunch of times. The modesty that you talk about is is, is intriguing uh, because he was a master and he deserved a lot more attention than he ever got. Part of the reason might have been he was so self-effacing. Uh, but man, the Feely stuff, you were, you were there as an eyewitness to those yeah. early shows. I am amazed at how great that album is, the the Crazy Rhythms album. I mean, there isn't a weak cut on it. And, no, it uh, stands. Anton's it, it, a big part of it. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, the thing that's amazing about Anton is that he did incredible work in so many different contexts over his career. Besides the, the work with the Feelies, you've got Bob Mould. But I think that the, the band that was really his pet project was the Golden Palominos. Um, that, that was a rotating cast of musicians. Uh, Anton was the constant on drums, but he was also sort of like a, a director. He was uh, casting each mm-hmm. album, you know, basically coming up with a new group of players to create new music, which was very intentional. He was speaking to his omnivorousness as a listener and a tastemaker, somebody who was interested in a large variety of music and wanted to explore it more fully with each album he worked on. Uh, Bill Laswell was a big part of it, the bassist. He was yeah. on uh, a number of those records, guitarist Nicky Scopolitis as well. But then you had this rotating cast, Richard Thompson, Michael Stipe, uh, Johnny Lydon, Chris you know, people working, John Zorn, the great yeah. you know, avant jazz player. So he started out you know, working in that no-wave scene in New York City, 
but branching out over the years and basically making a, a you know nine albums over the course of like three decades. Mm-hmm. Incredible run of records. Uh, I want to focus on uh, my favorite is the 1985, the second Golden Palomino's record, uh, Visions of Excess. Um, that was the one. Uh, Stipe was on this record. Um, and, uh, and, and Richard Thompson as well. Yeah. But the guitar player on this song is the no wave pioneer, Jody Harris. He was one of the, he was a guitar player in the contortions with yeah. James Chance, um, on the scronk guitar stipes on lead vocals, but fears drumming is so central to the, the, the concepts and themes behind this album. And you can hear it here as well, a track called clustering train. Uh, you got a drummer who can sound like a train, you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, and Anton just goes ballistic on this track. It's just like an A-bomb going off when those drums really kick in. So a great example of uh, uh, Fear's drumming, but so many different contexts in which he was a great drummer. Um, the Golden Palominos being Exhibit A. Here is Clustering Train from the Golden Palominos with Anton Fear on drums. That is it for our tributes to Anton Fear and Loretta Lynn. To hear all of our tributes throughout the year, listen to our podcast and tell us what you think. What artists did we neglect to mention this year? It's been a terrible year for rock deaths, and uh, maybe you have one that uh, you think we should should have mentioned. Leave a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, or start a conversation in our Patreon community or in our Facebook group. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, uh, you and I are going to discuss our, our favorite tracks of the year, top singles. I'm going to present some of my mixtape. We're going to do songs. Uh, exactly. And then we're going to have some special guests as well uh, telling us about theirs. And again, don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Just can't talk enough about music. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our Columbia College intern is Lauren Holt, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott. 